Daniel Krauthammer's father, the late Charles Krauthammer, was a towering intellect and a perennial force whose weekly column at the Washington Post earned him a 1987 Pulitzer and was circulated to 400 outlets worldwide. His first two books, Cutting Edges and Things That Matter, were published in 1985 and 2013, respectively. And today on the podcast, Pete Weiner of The Atlantic and The New York Times and I talk with his son Daniel about his dad and some of the ideas animating Charles Krauthammer's life. Judaism, democracy, America's role in the world, morality and statecraft in a well-lived life. All these topics feature prominently in Charles's newest and final book, published posthumously, The Point of It All. Daniel served as editor for this book, and because he is Charles and Robin's only son, there was an almost sacred quality to this conversation. Charles has written that his son's incisive and brilliant mind has been an incredible influence and shaper of my own since he was 10 years old. I believe that, not only because Daniel today holds degrees from Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford in political science, economics, and business, respectively, but because, in the wake of his father's death last year, Daniel's voice has been like a living torch, shining a clarion, next-generation spotlight on truths carefully and deliberately arrived upon, beginning with Charles's committed work for Jimmy Carter and Walter Mondale, and advancing into a lifetime of principled commentary from the right. Since you're listening to this podcast, it's likely that you already know Charles's story, that his parents were Orthodox Jews who emigrated to Montreal from Ukraine and Belgium, that Charles attended McGill, a hotbed for political radicalism, before studying politics at Balliol College, Oxford, and then entering Harvard Medical School, and that at age 22, a fateful diving accident left him paralyzed from the waist down, a new life and new future instantly imposed. As Pete puts it in a New York Times column, the fact that Charles graduated from medical school is itself remarkable. After breaking his neck, he spent 14 months in the hospital recovering. He rarely spoke about his accident, and when he did, he did so in a relaxed, matter-of-fact manner, minimizing its impact. He once described his accident as my one bad break, adding, overall, I've been dealt a pretty good hand. He was without an ounce of self-pity. All it means, Charles said, is whatever I do is a little bit harder and probably a little bit slower. And that's basically it. Everybody has this cross to bear. Everybody. Like this deep truth, Charles arrived at most of his beliefs carefully and deliberately. As comes through in the new book, he was incredibly thorough. But once he knew something to be true, he was settled, and he could say it with a settledness and wisdom that set him apart, speaking with the same graceful tenor from TV pundits to presidents, from interns to members of Congress. His great lesson, which still speaks, was not to be defined by what life throws at you, that you cannot control. And as Daniel puts it in his eulogy, linked in the show notes, via the point of it all, that means the task at hand is always to accept the hand you're dealt with grace, and then to go on and play that hand as joyously and industriously and vigorously as you can. This was vintage Charles Krauthammer, an outward-facing focus which consistently turned responsibility toward those tasked with leadership or toward a friend or colleague asking for advice. Right to the end, at age 68, when Charles died of cancer, those around him said he was truly curious of those visiting. What were you intrigued by? What are you thinking of doing next? And then, as Daniel writes, he would connect with you on exactly that topic and beat a trail with you to a deeper insight that you didn't even know was there. With the holidays in mind, if you like what you hear next, I can't recommend highly enough the new paperback edition of The Point of It All. In addition to Daniel's moving eulogy and opening, it includes 89 entries from Charles, including a new long-form essay, The Authoritarian Temptation. Enjoy the conversation. Well, 
Well, Daniel, Crowdhammer, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to have you here and to uh, talk about a little bit about you and about your dad and book that you helped oversee and put together. So thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's really a pleasure to be here with you guys. Before uh, talking about the book and, and your dad, um, let's talk a little bit about you and me. I think I met you, actually, when, when you were just a young lad, but... <laughs> In the summer of 2001, you were an intern at the White House. I was. And you were. And <laughs> in you your were, office. <laughs> you were. That's right. I was deputy director of speech writing, presidential speech writing at the time. And talk a little bit about your experience and some of the issues that you uh, worked on, which ended up actually affecting public policy in an important way. Yeah. Now, it's a little crazy to think about how long ago that was, but I was in high school at the time. And got uh, yeah summer internship position with you in the speech writing office uh, first year of the George W. Bush administration and the the main project you and Mike Gerson had me working on was uh, a whole lot of background research and and work on the stem cell debate which was a big deal at that time for listeners who remember the the crux of the argument was there was. It was federal funding going towards research at various universities and, and facilities on stem cell lines and whether the federal government should be providing funding for that given you know, many people's feeling that, that these embryos were full human lives and should be treated as such versus, of course, the other side of the potential for, for medical breakthroughs and so forth. So, you know, it was a long time ago, but I remember doing <laughs> lots of research in the the young internet <laughs> back then, and and reading through tons and getting reports and trying to compile and and summarize all the arguments for you guys on either side, and and I guess a little bit of that made it into to some of your final construction of the speeches that were given by the president on that. Yeah, well, you're too modest. More than a little bit of it uh, ended up making its way into that speech. The, the speech, it was actually the first primetime speech by President Bush, and right. he delivered it uh, from the ranch mm. in Crawford in August of 2001. It was a pre-9-11, of course. The interesting thing that struck me about that speech, and this is how the, the research that you did and the way that you framed your research made its way into the speech. It was a very rare presidential speech, which was, was extremely fair-minded on both sides of the issue. And if you didn't know what position President Bush was going to end up with when you were listening to that speech, you wouldn't have known mm. because he went out of his way to give a fair-minded critique of the different sides and the competing arguments. And it struck me then and it strikes me today that politics could use more of that kind of thing, that kind of sensibility. Yeah. No, I was, I was just as you were saying it, I was thinking that too, that, you know, a phrase that I often go to and and I know I got this from my dad is, is that reasonable people can disagree. Yeah. <laughs> and I think if, yeah, you have to, you still want to come to a position and an argument and something you believe in but I think acknowledging that a reasonable, rational, good-hearted, good-intentioned person can be on the other side of that is a really important thing to hold in your mind and not automatically think they're completely off the rocker or, or wishing harm on, on you and the country, which often seems to be the way we characterize each other in political debates these days. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. That's, uh, that's been a curse of politics probably since the beginning of politics, but it certainly seems more, more acute now than ever. Well, let's turn a little bit to talk about your dad and the book, The Point of It All, A Lifetime of Great Loves and Endeavors, which was edited by you, and the preface you wrote for the new paperback edition, which came out in the last month or so. But let me begin first, kind of get your 15,000-foot view of your dad's body of work. You've read everything that he's written. I think I've read just about everything that he's written. And so when you take a step back, uh, what do you think are some of the main messages that he wanted to convey to, to his readers and to the, to the country? I mean, he, he wrote about so many different topics, but what is your sense of what was central uh, and animating to, to him that he, that he did want to, to convey to readers? Yeah. So as you said, when I was editing this, it was a, it's a collection of some of his most important works, this book, and it's something that he started, but I had to finish for him. And as part of that, I went back and, and either read for the first time or reread essentially everything he ever wrote, which is almost 2,000 columns, essays, speeches, which is <laughs> quite a lot, and covers almost four decades from his first published article was 1979. And so it's a lot to take in. 
you know, I think the most striking thing to me in many ways was how consistent his thinking was across that amount of time, which really blew me away in some places of how I would read something and think, how is this written 30 years ago? And, you know, most of the book is more recent stuff, which is addressing specifically things we're dealing with. But there are many older pieces in the book that read like they could be written today because they drill down, you know, a few layers beneath whatever people were arguing about that year or that month or that day to, okay, what's the core question here? What's actually at the heart of our politics and how we're organizing ourselves? And it's those questions that I think always stay with us and we're continually having, you know, whatever the surface issue is, we're continually debating them again. And for this book, for the point of it all, I think I was in a way trying to make sure what was in there would answer just the kind of question you're asking of what's kind of the big question. And I think actually the title <laughs> speaks to it of, you know, what is the point of it all? And, you know, my dad, in this book and his other book, he he had the kind of, I think, a, almost a paradoxical answer to that, that the, the point of it all, of life, of all that we're doing, it most importantly should not be about politics. That shouldn't be what defines our lives or gives it meaning. The whole point is to find what has meaning for you. Uh, and there's lots of, the, you know, that that's in the book of stuff about his family, his friends, dear friends of his, what makes for a good life, fun, more lighthearted things like baseball and chess and, and religion and whatever it is that gives that you find meaning and directs you in your life as a free individual. And politics should not be the thing that defines that. It shouldn't say what you believe what's meaningful in your life. But somewhat paradoxically, we have to build some kind of politics and we need a politics that's constructed specifically to allow that freedom so that there's a superstructure of constitutional democracy around us that allows us all within that to be free, to interact, to not be set in, in place and told what to do. And so you just mentioned this before the interview started that he, he wanted to write a book about everything but politics because that was what animated his soul and his spirit but in the end he said well and there's a line that he writes he says in the end everything has to bow to politics because in the end if you don't get your politics right nothing else matters that all the beautiful and wonderful and soul enriching things we find can be utterly destroyed if we get politics wrong and so you know the point of his life and his professional life I think was dedicated to getting doing what he could to make sure our politics stayed on the right path. You know, one of his most dearly held beliefs was that America had gotten politics as right as humans had ever gotten it right. Not that it's ever perfect, because humans aren't perfect, but constitutional limited democracy and the idea of the rights of the individual and protecting those, that's a theme that I made sure was all throughout this book. And there are several anchor essays and even a lot of kind of some of them even really funny <laughs> other essays that hit on this topic of the importance of limited government of rights to be free from interference not being dependent on government and the importance of people having their own meaning in their lives not being given that meaning or dictated that meaning to by politics and government yeah no that's a very nice way of of putting it it struck me that he he was a person he he loved politics he had it in its right place he didn't overinvest meaning in it, but he was never cynical about it. Yeah. He was realistic about it, and he was able to laugh at some of the characters that from time to time come across the stage of, of, of American politics. But he believed deeply in it for exactly the reason that you said, which was it creates the conditions for so many other things. And my sense, I wonder if you, if you agree with it, there was a part of him, he was a conservative, so he, he did have a limited view of politics, but felt like politics rightly understood, rightly practiced, could be ennobling in some respects. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's, you know, why he did what he did in his life. He told me on, on many occasions that he felt so lucky to have found what he was meant to be doing, that you know, he had found his true calling and his vocation. And I think he did have a real sense of, of duty and kind of a higher calling to what he did. And he was never self-serious about it. He didn't take himself overly seriously and or or many other people in politics, as you were saying. He, he had a great sense of humor and a sense of perspective on all of it. But I think that perspective worked in both ways. He had enough perspective of, you know, the grand scheme of things and what really mattered to say, this is a pretty ridiculous thing we're all arguing about right here. Let's, you know, take it with a grain of salt and take ourselves with, with not too much seriousness. But at the same time, that, that same sense of history, 
he said, well, yeah, we're arguing about this little thing, but there are truly bad and awful things that can happen. And it's incredibly important that we we talk about politics, continue to work on politics, and keep it in a healthy and and human direction. I mean, he wrote about this came from a family of his parents were Jewish refugees from war-torn Europe. Right. And a lot of his extended family didn't make it through the war. You know, he felt incredibly lucky to have grown up an American in America and to have that as his identity. But I think he felt a closeness to a very <laughs> striking example in history of politics, what happens when it does go wrong. And I think he that was the root of a lot of his feeling of, you know, this isn't just playtime. This isn't just a job. This isn't me just making money. If I'm not doing this to say what I really think and really believe and really think is important, then what's the point of this? And that's actually the quote on the back of the book that I put that he he said, you know, if you don't say what you think and say it honestly and bluntly, you're betraying your whole life. Yeah. And I think he took that really seriously. You mentioned a little bit, or I want to go into a little bit of his of his history, because I'd be curious for listeners that, that don't know about his his history. So he went to Oxford, he studied political philosophy, political mm-hmm. theory, was influenced by a number of thinkers. I think Isaiah Berlin was, was yeah. probably maybe preeminent among them. And I remember the lunches that he and Bill Bennett, Charles Murray and I would have, Isaiah Berlin would, would come up from, from time to time. Then he left Oxford to go to medical school, psychiatry. That's what brought him out to D.C., and then he left that to go into in, into writing and commentary. Maybe talk a little bit about that, and I'm curious as to how you think about his history, both uh, at Oxford and then at medicine. In what ways, if any, do you think that it helped prepare him to be a commentator? What kind of habits of mind and thought were developed in his life before he was a columnist and commentator that you think served him well in that capacity? Sure. Well, I'll answer this on two tracks, maybe. So on, on one, just kind of his life story and how and why he took that path. I think I can identify with it a bit because I've also similarly, I think, struggled with having passions and desires to do things in different fields and and not knowing exactly where I can kind of best serve or, or do something that really makes a difference. And I think he felt that. As you mentioned, he was an undergrad and then a graduate student at Oxford. He loved political philosophy, and that was his focus and, and writing about politics and big ideas. But as he had told me and, and wrote in many places and talked about uh, in interviews, he felt he was kind of getting untethered from reality of talking about ideas and abstractions that didn't relate to anyone's actual well-being. And he wanted to feel like he was making a difference and medicine was somewhere you know you are mm-hmm. helping someone as in as concrete a way as you possibly can and also dealing with facts that are real and can't be twisted into some abstract nonsense so i think that was the reason he went into medicine went to harvard medical school and then was chief resident of psychiatry at mass general and he always said he kind of with psychiatry was trying to split the difference a little bit <laughs> between i think the phrase he used was the the art and poetry of philosophy with the the hard science of medicine. He did that almost for a decade and, you know, did some groundbreaking works, published some some original research. Instead of getting the best of both worlds, I think he felt like maybe he got the worst of both worlds and really always felt felt this yearning for to be in the arena of political ideas and big ideas and it was my mother, really, I think, who encouraged him to follow that and said, all right, if, you don't, if you're not doing what you're meant to be doing, then let's change it. So as you mentioned, he, he managed to finagle his way down to D.C. to at first work at the National Institutes of Mental Health. But once he figured, ah, oh, well, they do politics in D.C., so once I'm there, I'll figure it out. And he started submitting writing samples, got a few things published, then got a speech writing job with Walter Mondale, which is another story we could talk about. And after that, started writing for the New Republic and then the Washington Post, and that was kind of his trajectory. So I think it he always had the passion and the desire for politics, but I think it took him a while to figure out how he could do it in a way that felt meaningful and impactful and real. And I think to, to the second track then of how that background, what he brought from that to writing, I think probably, again, most powerfully, I'd say it was just that sense of purpose that mm-hmm. not everyone may be... I think a lot of people just kind of like the fun of arguing or right. or being in politics or the power of it or the celebrity. And not everyone, but I but I think my dad having committed that much to one career and then, and as he said in several interviews, you know, that's a career you know you're helping people. So right. and that's actually the genesis of that quote. 
you know, you're betraying your whole life if you don't say the truth and really do what he was supposed to do as a commentator. And you think he felt that because he knew he left behind something where he really was helping people. Yeah. So I'd say that's kind of the maybe morally the most important thing. I think, secondly, he it gave him a very scientific outlook. He looked at data. He 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 would often in in talking about social policy and looking at the evidence, he'd say, look, as a doctor, you're trained, if the medicine's killing the patient, you stop the medicine. So there's that kind of just practical, scientific look at policy that he brought to it. And I think he always tried to eschew the idea that he was psychologizing or diagnosing politicians as much as people asked him that. But I, I do think there was an element of, I don't even know if it was from his training as a psychiatrist. I think it was more just his general outlook on life. But I think he had a good sense of human nature and that that's really at the root of everything. And as much as we want to wish it away, people are going to act the way people have always acted and that politics has to take that into account. Otherwise, you're living in a, either a fantasy world or a dystopian fantasy world. So I think that was something I found in particular reading through all his work that he he would always kind of bring politics back, however high the level or abstracted or global it was to, well, this is what people do in these situations. And if you're going to design politics in this way, this is the bad outcome you're going to get. You need a politics that takes account of our follies uh, and acknowledges them and tries to do the best we can, given our imperfect nature. Yeah, That bent toward the hard sciences and toward data and toward a substantive and consistent message instead of convictions for a lot of us who, who read your dad and watched your dad through the years was a, a consistent trademark of his demeanor and personality. I'm curious to ask also about your sense of, of religious faith and of his strong regard for history. What from his own orthodox upbringing affected his view of human nature or of what politics could or could not accomplish? And in your view, why was history so important starting with 722 BC rather than the latest tweet? Mm. All right, there's a lot in that question. <laughs> so let me, I think maybe a couple answers. So in terms of his own history uh, and upbringing and his faith, as you mentioned, he was brought up in an Orthodox Jewish household. His <laughs> parents were very religious and he was raised very religious and, and really steeped in, in the learning and the culture in particular. I mean, he, there are interviews where he jokes about, you know, having extra, extra Talmud lessons on Sunday, you know, hockey night in Canada, whatever. He really knew this stuff inside and out growing up. He kind of left, well, didn't leave the faith, but he became less religious, less, less of a believer, perhaps, as a young man when he left home. And he's talked about this, had a bit of a journey spiritually and intellectually to a place where he came back, I'd say, to the faith in a, a place of not so much out of pure belief, but out of incredible reverence and respect for the tradition, for the history, for the teachings and the wisdom of that, as you mentioned, multiple thousand years of of wise men writing and thinking and contemplating these most important questions. And I think, you know, I've often thought there's some parallels there. I'm not even parallels, I think it comes from the same place that he, both from, I think, that religious standpoint and also if you read a lot about what he writes about his his upbringing politically, of seeing a lot of his contemporaries finding the truth in one, as he puts it, political romanticism or another, whether it was, you know, in the, the in vogue mark Maoism of the 60s or right-wing nationalism or what have you of people being 100% sure they found the way. And as he put it, you know, when he really dug into and discovered the great Enlightenment thinkers, John Stuart Mill and the founders and their kind of more modern interpreters like Isaiah Berlin, that's where he said, well, this is clearly the answer. It's, it's having reverence for not knowing the whole 100% mm. truth, that no one has access to the truth in the end. That's the human condition in every realm of life, but particularly in politics when if you're in charge, you're going to tell other people what to do. You have to build a system around uncertainty, around the fact that we have different ideas and, and nobody knows the right answer. And that's the whole idea of a competition of ideas of an open marketplace of thought and argument and engagement. You know, when I think about his let's say, style of conservatism or his set of beliefs, I often think about this of, of a real, I think it came from, sometimes I think conservatives can come from a kind of cynical place of, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, <laughs> you know, it's all these 
let's just, you know, hunker down and, you know, I guess maybe the Bill Buckley line, you know, stand athwart history and yell stop. And I've actually came up with a little thing I said to a friend once. You know, I think if I were to try to put my dad's thought process in one phrase like that, it would be not yell stop, but stand athwart history and yell think. <laughs> That's you nice. Know, that, that he, that you know, he had a not this kind of dour, cynical outlook, but he had a very optimistic outlook. But he said, all right, let's, we can improve, things can get better, but let's not pretend that we have some we've magically been endowed with wisdom that humanity never had up till now. Sure, we, you know, we have better science and we've learned better things, but morally, we've not advanced hugely from the ancients. Let's, let's have some humility about our own degree of knowledge of how perfect we can make our society. Let's, let's have some faith that traditions that have been around for thousands of years, hundreds of years, and the great thinkers of the past have something to tell us. And let's not make it off limits, but let's be careful. Let's think about it. Let's revere the past and the knowledge that that we inherit because we're never going to get to any perfect place either. Let's make our incremental steps, but let's never presume that we're going to make a perfect society or know all the answers either. Well, he did stand with history and say think uh, and, and did it better than, than anybody. Uh, but to say on this theme, he wrote about civil religion, which he thought was important, even essential, I think, for America. Um, and the importance of a democratic religion. And he wrote in, in one of his essays, the deeply disillusioning truth about democracy is that it's designed at its core to be spiritually empty. It mandates means, but not ends. Can you dilate a little bit on, on that quote and, and the deeper meaning of it? How did he see faith in America, both the things that it, the purposes that it served and potentially the dangers that, that were uh, inherent in it? Yeah. Yeah, several of what I think are the key <laughs> columns and essays in The Point of It All relate to this point and the idea of civil religion or reverence for our political institutions and our, our political way of life in America. My dad often came back to this of, you know, he saw the importance of the trappings and the human acting out of somewhat religious rituals around the democratic way of life we've constructed because I think he saw correctly that humans have a need for meaning, a need to fill our lives with something, a higher purpose and a communally shared purpose. But democracy, as we were talking about, and free open societies by their nature, they say there is no one truth. There is no one higher purpose, one high good that we all commit to. That's the whole point. That's the, the wonder and the, the, the gift of freedom. But at the same time, that makes it very hard to bind together, to have any, if we're all just floating around here, searching our own meaning, that's not a, a great way to, to bring people together, organize a society, have something that lasts and can withstand other ideologies that perhaps wrongly, and, and I think in general, do wrongly say, ah, here's my political ideology, this is the highest good. You know, whether that's communism, whether that's that's some kind of racism or, or nationalism or uh, extreme socialism, environmentalism, what have you. If you have to push back against whatever it is that will give you one supreme value to subjugate everything else, it's important to to have that value codified in a concrete way. My dad wasn't the one who came up with this. He was citing a lot of social scientists and philosophers who looked at the importance of of having those human emotional connections to the democratic project. And so the idea of, he has a whole article in here about the re reverence for the Constitution and how important it is that we don't see it as a piece of paper that you can manipulate however you want, that we see it as a semi-holy document, really. And you know, I think a perfect example, there's tons of countries with constitutions that outline a whole lot more rights than we have in ours, but nobody cares about it. Right. And so much of it comes down to how, how we look at things emotionally and spiritually and how we celebrate freedom and make a really something that we venerate out of all these very abstract ideas because it's hard to have a, a human emotional connection to the idea of openness and freedom. And so putting concreteness to it was important for him. And I think you, when you're asking about faith, I think, you know, it, it, there's two elements to it here that I think is, on the one hand, a danger is as people lose a lot of faith and look for other places right. to get meaning from. And so I think my, my father often identified, you know, how it was often people looking for a new religion who would gravitate to these extreme political ideologies. And for him personally, I think also, 
it always struck me that the similarities in his personal reverence and his advocacy for kind of a, a reverence for America's civil institutions, for her, her civil religion, as Abraham Lincoln put it, and his own sense of Judaism, that he had a very, I would say, abstract appreciation for Judaism and the faith. And, and I always thought there's a wonderful metaphor was something that he often would mention as something that he just thought was so wonderful and brilliant that at the center of Judaism, particularly the ancient variety when the temple still existed, you know, in the center of the temple in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies where God's presence was supposed to be, there wasn't some giant statue, there wasn't some, you know, golden idol, there was nothing. There was an emptiness that was incomprehensible to humans. And that, I think that to me, that always struck me as such a wonderful parallel to, yeah. to democracy, that we, we have this temple, we need to venerate it and keep it guarded, because in the middle, it is empty. It's for all of us to relate in our own personal way to whatever that core of it is. But if we don't have something concrete and sturdy around it, then it's all lost. Yeah. It also struck me that, that your dad and my experience with him and what I, both personally and what I observed is that he had a deep respect for people of faith. He himself referred to himself as a complicated agnostic. The one theology that he was most passionate about rejecting was (laughs) atheism. And he would uh, talk about going back to the origins question, and he would talk about about Einstein and the beauty and logic and simplicity to the universe. And so there was was something in which, for a lot of intellectuals, they looked down on people of faith and the concept of faith. What you said strikes me as, 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 as beautifully put and true in my experience with them, which was there was some element of wonder and mystery and beauty that was beyond our comprehension. So it wasn't so much that God was a God of history, but that he was open to the idea that there was something that gave purpose and meaning to this universe and to existence. Yeah, I think that's very well put. And I think one other word that that comes to mind with this is humility. (laughs) And I think he had a real sense that for anyone to, again, to pretend they know the truth, whether it's exactly what God is or exactly what he's telling us all to be, equally kind of absurd is to be 100% sure that there is no God and I know exactly how the universe is made. You know, it's kind of, I think he took this, how could you possibly think that you understand everything well enough to be able to, to be completely convinced of this one truth? Yeah. He used this... A uh, quote from Newton, I think it was. Newton said, you know, I, in trying to contemplate the workings of the universe, I feel like a snail on the, on the edge of the ocean trying to understand how the tides work. Yeah. It's like there's just no way that snail is ever going to understand that. And my dad used that as a bit of a metaphor saying, look, let's, let's have some moral intellectual humility and step back and say there are things that we don't know and we may never know. And there may be something absolutely core to our human nature that makes it impossible to know. So having, I think, that, to your point, was a lot of his openness to, really, to the unknown, and but a almost a I would say a spiritual reverence for the unknown. That that's not just it's not just a negative absence. It's something indelible to the human experience and to the nature of the universe. That there are things that we can't understand, and we should have, you know, we should build in a degree of respect and reverence for that to how we approach everything. And yet, I was just thinking that humility you describe. Um, is so commonly coupled with your writing and his writing in the new book with this sort of deep conviction also humbly held. But his comment in the piece you guys put out earlier in the, in the month in the post about authoritarian temptation, you cite Wordsworth at the end, bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, celebrating the wonder of 30 years with the Berlin Wall fallen and living post-Cold War, and what a marvel that is. And yet, as some folks in the Faith Angle community talked about recently, the authoritarian trend is rising. Uh, National populism, at the very least, is rising. And if you look at Poland or Hungary, as you talk about in the article, or Italy or Spain or the Netherlands or Austria or even France, to say nothing of, of Brexit or here, that seems to be filling some of the void that is this open-ended of the people experiment. What caution does history and Jewish religion bring to that trend? Yeah. Well, to your first point, I agree. I think this combination of 
both humility but having deeply held convictions, something my dad did well. And often I think it's hard to combine those two things. All of this is in some degree a paradox of, again, he, he fought as hard as he could for a system of human government and organization of freedom and openness. It's like how do you fight passionately for something that says nobody has the ultimate right answer. It's There's a tension there, but that's the core of it. That's what this the whole American experiment is about. And more generally, the belief in the sanctity of the individual, of individual rights and democracy that flows from that. And to your point about the current moment and his essay, which is the last major essay on global affairs he was ever able to write, which is really kind of the anchor for for this book and its section on on world history and foreign policy, he talks about the danger that the West faces in a renewed or a new form of anti-democratic, anti-enlightenment thinking. And, you know, my dad was, there's an article right next to that called The Arrow of History, where my father asked the question, is history a straight arrow, always in the direction of improvement and greater freedom and democracy and development, or is it just a cycle where we just go round and round and repeat the same mistakes and go through the same cycles again and again? And I think he was, in that article and in his life, he was very undecided. I think he often called out the naivete of those who just thought it was an arrow and it would just go that way no matter what we did. We don't have to involve ourselves. And he said no. And again, I think a lot of this comes from his sense of history of you know, he pointed to look at Germany in the 1930s. That was the height of civilization at the time. It wasn't in some backwater, some barbarian hordes that became Nazis. It was the most developed, most culturally advanced country in the world. And so the, the I think he always had this sense that we can't be too sure, that things can move backwards very easily. Progress does not always move in the upward trajectory. But I think at the same time, he believed very much that we could go through these these false idols, false ideologies, but none of them had offered any answer to the real core human questions better than democracy and the system that we've come up with. So I think maybe if you could sum it up, it's that you have to remain vigilant always, that you can't ever rest on your laurels like after the Berlin Wall fell, for instance, that every generation is going to struggle with this quest for meaning on the one hand, varying ideologies that, that may offer false promises, false fulfillments, and the, the constant need, as he wrote, the, I think the quote is the, it's the constant struggle of every generation to uphold strong the structures of constitutional democracy, to which I, meaning he, devoted much of his life. And I think he, he viewed that as his vocation, what he was committing to, to his generation and generations to come. And, you know, I hope we can take some inspiration from that example, too. Is to pause a second on that idea of epistemological modesty, in a sense, which used to be a pillar of conservatism. It's it's changed a little bit over over the years, but I think there was something deeply and importantly true about that. And your dad had the ability, as, as you were getting at uh, Josh, which is on the one hand to concede that there were some extremely complicated moral matters. I remember an essay that he wrote back in 1985 on abortion. I remember actually reading it at the uh, time about the inescapable ambiguity of that question. I'm going to quote from it because it's, it's, it's a quote that I felt like people on all sides of this debate could learn from. And he said, there's not the slightest recognition on either side that abortion might be at the limits of our empirical and moral knowledge. The problem starts with an awesome mystery, the transformation of two soulless cells into a living human being that leads to an insoluble empirical question, how and exactly when does that occur? On that, in turn, hangs the moral issue. What are the claims of the entity undergoing that transformation? How can we expect such a question to yield answers that are not tentative and indeterminate? So difficult a moral question should command humility, or at least a little old-fashioned tolerance. And I thought that was a beautiful way of, of expressing that And yet, on the other hand, he did have these deep convictions. He didn't spend his, his life as a writer. It would be hard, actually, as a columnist to spend your life as a writer, you know, never certain about any issues or never coming down on certain matters. So he had a sense of right and wrong and, and morality. And how you 
navigate your way through that is really the test of a great mind and an intellectually honest mind. And I think to figure out where is the ambiguity and the modesty and and where do the convictions begin to, to kick in is really a matter of prudence and wisdom and just good judgment. And, and that was something that, that he had in, uh, more than, than any writer that I've ever ever come across. I wanted to ask you a little bit, if you could, to talk about the role of Zionism and the Jewish identity and how important that was and how that that shaped your dad. And I know his father was, was a Zionist even before the Second World War and that he saw Israel. You spent a lot of time arguing with moral power and, and eloquence on behalf of, of, the, of, of the Jewish state and against the idea of colonialism. But maybe you can, you can elaborate a little bit on, on that, both the role of Zionism as it related to him, but also how he viewed Israel. Now, as you said, Zionism and, and the coming about of the state of Israel, which happened just two years before he was born, was really important to him. Much of his Jewishness, I think, was, as we talked on the kind of moral, spiritual side was the wisdom, the traditions, the culture, but there was also a peoplehood aspect to it of knowing that these aren't just ancient texts. This is a living, breathing community society that he felt very much a part of and was incredibly important to his own identity. And he was an ardent defender of Israel and believer in the principle of Zionism, which is very simply that the Jewish people, like any other national group, has the right to to have their own independence and their own state. And he argued, as you said, very eloquently and powerfully for I mean, his entire career on this question. And often, uh, you know, I think he felt, I think, a duty to do it, but he wanted to make sure he did it in the most powerful way he could and, and was always there as a reminder of truth. And I, I came across a letter he had written to a friend where he said, you know, sometimes I, I feel like a broken record. I just keep saying the same thing over and over again because everyone just forgets, you know, the history that happened two years ago. And this friend said, yes, but it's it's so important that you do this because if, if someone's not saying the obvious truths, then the truths disappear. And I think in particularly in terms of Israel, I think that's what my father committed to doing of of repeating the obvious truths. And like at the core, as we just said, that Jewish people, like any other, has a right to their own state, determine their own destiny. And I think in particular, he he fought back against the narrative you mentioned of Israel as a colonial state, which is one of the, let's say, the more prevalent arguments on the anti-Zionist side. And he he does it in this book and, and did it often, drew on his very wide and and deep knowledge of history to say, to our point of trying to understand the other side and not just dismiss them. He said, this is wrong, but let's look at why this is wrong and why it's so easy for people to fall into this this kind of belief that Israel is a colonial state because there is no other historical example. There's no other people that were exiled, nearly disappeared from the face of the earth for 2,000 years and came back to their homeland. It just has not happened. We have examples of colonialism from the last two centuries, and so that's something that people can recognize and put into a bucket of a category. But there simply is no other parallel here. So just the very uniqueness of the Jewish people in history in general, and in particular in refounding a state in this way, makes it something that makes it hard to categorize it all and therefore it's understandable why people of goodwill maybe seem convinced by what is at heart a disingenuous argument because it is not a colonial state it's it's an independent people with no other home going back to a land they've had connection with for 2000 no, 3000 years and those are the kind of arguments of with incredible knowledge depth understanding of the roots of and the assumptions of the other side and addressing those to make the most compelling argument he could across the spectrum, both to those who are already on his side, but a much more importantly to those who were undecided and who and who could be convinced on the other side. Daniel, I'd like to, to hear your thoughts uh, on your dad's pilgrimage from uh, liberalism to conservatism. You mentioned earlier that he was a speechwriter for Walter Mondale uh, in 1980, which uh, some people on the right never forgave him for. And he, he tells – actually, it's a touching story about how in 1984, he didn't vote for either Mondale or Reagan. You can tell why he uh, why he didn't and, and how he ended up being one of the 
most eloquent champions of conservatism, having started out as a liberal and started out as a writer for the uh, for the New Republic. Yeah, made up for coining that term, the Reagan Doctrine, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a question that gets asked a lot, and he um, he talks about it in his books and and has talked about it elsewhere. I'd say there's two general answers. One, I think, is if you split it into his views on foreign policy and domestic policy, on foreign policy, it really was, I think the, the cliche is true of he didn't leave the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left him, that he was part of the the Cold Warrior wing of the Democratic Party, the Scoop Jackson, right. Kennedy tradition of promoting the American way of life abroad, a strong foreign policy, aggressive against the Soviet Union. And as he pointed out many times in the last year of the Carter administration, when he was there, Carter did get pretty tough on the Soviets mm-hmm. after they invaded Afghanistan. And in his telling, he, when Reagan was elected and was president, he saw the Democrats just go crazy left wing. And with the nuclear freeze movement, really giving up all the logic of the Cold War. And, and he found himself agreeing with Reagan, even though he had never changed position. So I think on foreign policy, it was, and this was amazing to me putting the book together, seeing how constant his positions on foreign policy were all throughout the decades. On domestic policy, uh, I think he, he said he did have more of a migration from left to right. And it was, I think, a, an instance of having the same core philosophy and goals of you know wanting to help people, wanting society to be healthier and better. The idea of the originally the great society to bring those at the bottom up. But really, he just, this was kind of the hard scientist aspect of him. He right. saw the social science data coming back in the 80s from great society programs, from welfare, and seeing, in many cases, not only was it not doing any good, but actually doing harm. And so he came to, to think, okay, the, the capacity of government to do good is is not as great as we would like. And really, the substantive way to, to get outcomes we want better is more limited government, is letting civil society have more space to fill this and let private enterprise and charities and human self-will fill that. You know, that was a big set of policy changes that he came to and, the, and found himself then much more aligned on the conservative point of view. But I think it still did stem, you know, his philosophy undergirding all of that still came from, I think, really his Oxford days of again, at the core, a pluralist, open, democratic society and making sure that that was the key base of whatever was argued. I just noticed in so many of his writings throughout that he would be allergic to whichever side seemed kind of the most extreme, the most sure they knew all the answers at any given time, which for most of his career he found to be on the left. <laughs> but but he saw that on the right from time to time too and and recoiled from that as well. Yeah, and to complete that story about the vote in uh, 1984, if he had his druthers, he would have voted for Ronald Reagan, but because he had worked for Walter Mondale and respected him so much, he felt like uh, there would have been something disloyal about voting for him, so he didn't vote for for either one. I think he said that if if it had come down to a single vote deciding the election, he would have voted for Reagan. Yeah. But there was something about, admirable about that connection to to Mondale, who was uh, an, an impressive, yeah. uh, impressive human being. Under the category, there's more to life than politics. At least for your dad, more to life than politics was chess. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. I don't know if you had your own experiences watching him play, but it had profound impact. He loved the game, but maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, he was a chess fiend. <laughs> he just loved it. You know, he taught me when I was a kid, and I, I played with him a lot when I was younger, but I, I never got quite as into it as he was. <laughs> it would have been impossible to yeah, have gotten into it. Yeah, no, I mean, he writes it. about in the book. I mean, he took trips up to New York not once but twice to watch World Chess Championships at the World Trade Center. Not a normal activity for a grown man. <laughs> but no, we had, there was a room in our house that was the chess room, and every Monday night he would have his chess buddies over, and they would just play. But that room had no other purpose the rest of the week. It was just a bunch of tables with chess boards on it. And so he did that. He played a lot of online chess, but he kind of he kind of had to to go cold turkey at one point. It was getting too addictive for him. But he just loved the game. I think it was, you know, just the fact that it was kind of pure thought that yeah. really attracted him to it and that that realm of almost complete abstraction and competitive play he loved too. So I think it was just kind of a perfect trap for him. You know, following Pete's question on 
joy of life outside of politics. I've heard you say elsewhere that you couldn't pass a gumball machine without the two of you going and making sure you got, and you know, this sort of childlike joy that was part of your dad's demeanor. And of course, you were big baseball fans. And this year, uh, not the Red Sox, but his Washington Nationals uh, made it through dramatic World Series set of games to win the series. What was that like for you watching at this season? Was that bittersweet? How did that play? Yeah, it was quite something. Yeah, the word you use is actually the the only one I can find that describes it well. I mean, it was amazing that they won. And I mean, he would have been so happy and, and just loved it. And I got so many messages uh, from people, from friends, colleagues, pals you hung out with at the ballpark, and just tons of fans on Twitter, email, you know, Astros fans saying that they were <laughs> celebrating because they knew how happy my dad would be. So, so it's wonderful on the one hand, but of course, it made me wish all the more he could have been there to share it with him. So, so as with many things in this realm, there's there's sadness and and happiness all wrapped up in one. I once exchanged notes with your dad on uh, it was on a Super Bowl that was coming up. Uh, but he couldn't help concluding uh, his note by saying, of course, the whole damn game is just a prelude to the beginning of spring training. We must keep things in perspective, <laughs> which he did. And I wanted to say, uh, for my part, uh, just on a personal note, to say something about your dad and about you. When I came to Washington, D.C., I was on an internship, actually. It was University of Washington. And this was in the 1980s. And I was looking for an intellectual role model to um, try and learn from. Your dad was was that person. And over time, we developed a friendship, which I treasured. Then over time, he became something of a hero to me. And he would blanch at that, uh, at that term. But it really was based on the integrity and the dignity and the courage of, uh, of his life. And he was a, a life-giving person and, and life-affirming and a, a person of, who embodied so many wonderful virtues. And I know this from my conversations with him, which is how much he deeply loved you. And no father could be prouder of a son than he was. So thank you very much for allowing us to have entered into some of your dad's uh, Life and the uh, book is The Point of It All, A Lifetime of Great Loves and Endeavors. And they are writings from the best columnists to grace the pages of any American uh, newspaper. So thanks for being with us, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me. Faith Angle exists to connect mainstream journalists with cutting edge religion scholars and with leading public intellectuals. Thanks for listening.